In my early days, I faced a pivotal moment in my career. Instead of following the herd into traditional finance, I charted my own course. Despite skepticism, I founded my investment firm driven by a belief in economic truth and fiscal responsibility. Through perseverance, I established myself as a leading voice in finance, proving that sometimes blazing your own path is the best way to succeed. To get what you want, sometimes you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail. That's what Harry's did. Seeing people tricked by expensive razors, Harry's took a stand. Instead of pricey options, they offer high-quality razors at a fraction of the cost. That's why when it comes to grooming my face, I use Harry's. Harry's understands the value of quality without breaking the bank. Their razors provide a smooth shave every time, and their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com gold. That's harrys.com gold for a $3 trial set. Hi, everybody. Welcome again to another live Peter Schiff Show podcast, the unspoken 2023 financial crisis continues this week. In fact, it kicked maybe into a higher gear. It's hard to say this morning. We've got some more bad news coming out of European banks, specifically Deutsche Bank. What started the sell-off, although there was a pretty big recovery late in the day, so all these financials closed off their lows. And in fact, the Dow Jones was down about 350 points early in the morning before uh, they rang the opening bell based on the weakness in European stocks. The Dow ended up closing positive 130 points on the day. In fact, the entire stock market turned around. And a lot of these financials like Deutsche Bank, which was down on the day, finished considerably off the lows. But what really started it going was the news that the uh, cost for credit default swaps on Deutsche Bank soared. And what that is, is people who want to hedge the risk because they have Deutsche Bank as a counterparty and they want to hedge the risk that maybe Deutsche Bank is going to fail and therefore, they're not going to get paid the money that Deutsche Bank owes them so they could buy these credit default swaps. You know, we... um did something similar to that when we were shorting subprime in 2006. We were worried that some of the banks that were on the other side of those trades were going to go bankrupt because of those trades. So we ended up buying the credit default swap. So we thought, well, if we can't get paid uh, by our counterparty on the mortgages we've shorted, we'll get paid on these credit default swaps. And it ended up that we, we made money on both because the counterparties didn't go bankrupt because they were all bailed out, right? Uh, but we were able to trade out of those credit default swaps. I think we made money there. And then, of course, we made money on the subprime blowing up. But all this, of course, very reminiscent of what was going on in, in 2008. Now, of course, everybody is dismissing the similarities. No, no, this is not a financial crisis, right? It's a banking crisis where, you know, what's the difference, right? The financial crisis was a banking crisis, but everybody thinks that it's under control. And I think one of the reasons that the market turned around today is Janet Yellen came out at some point during the day and announced that over the weekend, there is going to be a special meeting of the financial stability 
Oversight Council. I think that's otherwise known as the Plunge Protection Team. And it's going to be a, a closed door meeting, although I really would like to be a fly on the wall of that meeting. But I think that meeting, uh, you know, caused some hope that, oh, they're meeting to try to figure out another bailout, right? Maybe they're coming up with uh, some type of rescue package for, for something, or they're going to do something about the deposit insurance and the banks. But after all, it was just calling the meeting, I think, that got people's hopes uh, going, maybe caused some shorts to cover into the weekend in case there was something positive that's coming out of the meeting. In my mind, the fact that they have to call this emergency meeting uh, should be of concern, right? They're, they're all worried that something bad's gonna happen. Now, who's actually in on the meeting, in case you're not sure who's gonna meet? And now this is over the weekend, right? These guys don't normally work on the weekends. So the fact that they've gotta work on the weekends, they're obviously worried. I talked about that on a prior po podcast when we first had the Silicon Valley Bank blow up, and I thought, well, they're gonna have to work hard over the weekend so they can figure something out before the stock market's open uh, Sunday night in Asia, and that's exactly what they did. They came up with a bailout, not only for Silicon Valley Bank, but Signature Bank, which we didn't even know had failed on the Friday I did that podcast. They announced its failure over the weekend, and at the same time announced the bailout for all the customers. So I think they're hard at work over this weekend to try to avoid another major blow up on Sunday night, Monday morning. But the uh, people who are meeting, number one, you've got the Secretary of the Treasury herself, Janet Yellen. Uh, maybe she's uh, the head of the meeting, I'm not really sure. You also got Fed Chair Powell, who's in on this meeting. But in addition, you've got this big cast of characters. I'm not even sure who these people are, right? I don't know their names, but I, I made a list of what their job titles are. So you have an idea. So you've got the controller of the currency, You've got the director of the Bureau of Consumer Financial Protection. You've got the chairman of the Securities and Exchange Commission. Uh, you've got the chairperson of the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, the chairperson of the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, the director of the Federal Housing Financial Agency, the chairman of the National Credit uh, Union Administration, and then you've got an independent member who's got some insurance expertise. I'm not sure if this is the entire cast of characters or if there's a few more members of this committee, but you know, some pretty heavy hitters in government are going to give up you know, part of their weekend uh, in order to have this emergency closed door meeting. And they're not doing it uh, because they're going to discuss sports or, or stuff like that. I mean, this is some serious stuff that they have to acknowledge. I mean, really, they have to admit we're really screwed here there's really you know, nothing that we could do. We, you know, we completely screwed ourselves up. You know, when I hear all these uh, financial journalists reporting about what's going on, it really is amazing to me the degree of uh, ignorance out there in the financial media because they're reporting about all these events like, uh, oh, my God, like, Nobody could have seen this coming. Like, this is crazy. Like, why is this happening? Oh, you know, we need the government. Government has to come in with a solution. They still don't get it. We don't need the government for a solution. It was the government's last solution that caused this problem. The way they tried to solve the 2008 financial crisis made this greater financial crisis inevitable. Not only was it inevitable, it was obvious anybody with a, even a rudimentary understanding of basic economics could have made this forecast.
But of course, if you want to be a financial reporter, you have to flunk an exam on, on basic economics. You can't know the first thing <laughs> about how an economy works if you want to be a financial journalist in the United States. So these guys are like, oh my God, like, how could this happen? I mean, just as the Fed is fighting inflation and they're raising rates and out of nowhere, you know, nobody could have predicted this. All of a sudden these banks are starting to fail. Oh my God, this is really complicating the Fed's attempt to, you know, fight inflation. This was inevitable. I've been saying this from the very beginning. The minute they made the mistake of doing quantitative easing for the first time, I said this was going to happen. This financial crisis was always inevitable based on what we did. Remember, I kept saying we made a deal with the devil. Right? What was the deal we made with the devil? Okay, well, we'll cut rates to zero and we will uh, do QE and we won't have a worse financial crisis than what we've already got. Right? We'll bail everybody out. We'll artificially prop up the economy. Okay, so what does the devil get in return, right? Because in a classic deal with the devil, you sell your soul, right? You get a great life. Now you can, you know, you know, really live it up or whatever it is while you're here on earth. But then after you die, you spend an eternity in hell. So it's generally not a good deal, right? I mean, it's really living in the now, right? Because if you think about hell is all eternity and you make this deal with the devil where, you know, you get to enjoy your life or whatever you got, 50, 60 years, 80 years, whenever, I don't know how old you are when you, when you, you know, you make this deal. But then you die and the payback is instead of having eternity in heaven, you have an eternity in hell. So generally, if the devil wants to make you a deal, you're not supposed to accept it. Except in this case, they did accept the deal with the devil because it wasn't their own souls they were selling. It was the souls of the American people. They were selling out the economy. All they cared about is the next election. And that deal with the devil got people reelected. Well, the devil is here to collect, but you know, we're not going to hell, right? We're going to get massive inflation. That was the trade-off. You get a artificial recovery now for inflation later, right? That was the deal. Now, it took a long time for the devil to come back, right? He certainly, you know, gave us a lot of time to enjoy, you know, the the positive part of the bargain before he came a collecting on the negative part. And what I always said was going to happen when inflation reared its head, which I knew it would do eventually. And in fact, because I was warning about this so loudly and so often and so early, most people thought, well, Schiff is wrong. He predicted all this inflation. And look, none of it is happening, right? This guy doesn't know what he's talking about. We don't have any inflation. Oh, yes, we did. We just weren't honestly reporting it. But I agree. I expected the official numbers to be a lot higher a lot sooner. So we were able to delay that day of reckoning, in part because of our large trade deficits and our ability to export the inflation. And paradoxically, and I went over this on a prior podcast, by keeping interest rates artificially low initially, that helped reduce the consumer price index because interest rates were part of those prices. It's a cost that businesses have, like raw materials and labor, which they pass on to their consumers or their customers. And when rates went on, they could pass on those savings. So that helped keep prices down. Obviously, it kept rents down, housing costs down. Uh, it made it cheaper to buy cars. So a lot of stuff was cheaper 
because money was cheaper. And so that kind of skewed up the data. But I knew eventually the chickens would come home to roost, and they did in a big way following the reopening of the economy after the shutdown during uh, uh, COVID. And that also created some kind of confusion that the initial increase in inflation was a result of the supply chain bottlenecks and shortages because of the COVID lockdowns. That wasn't the reason. Prices were going to go up anyway. The uh, COVID situation and the foolish policies that we pursued just made it worse. But I don't even think we've seen the full impact of that inflation yet. I think we've just caught up to the inflation that started years before that in the earlier QEs. Now, again, when QE started, not only did I say it was a deal with the devil, I said it was a roach motel, that the Fed could check in, but they couldn't check out, that we would have more QEs than Rocky movies. And now we have QE5. And I forget, again, if we had Rocky 6 or not. I don't remember. I remember Rocky 5, I think, was pretty bad. So uh, uh, this is going to be bad. And it's going to be bigger than uh, the last QE because it's just got started. Now, by the way, we did get the um, data on the Fed's balance sheet that came out yesterday. And I actually had expected a bigger increase than the one we got. So in one week, the balance sheet was up by about 95 billion dollars. So in the last two weeks, it's up by almost $400 billion. The size of the Fed's balance sheet is back up to $8.734 trillion. Now remember, the quantitative tightening program was supposed to be $85 billion a month. Well, we just expanded by $95 billion in a week. So quantitative tightening, gone. Quantitative easing is back, and it's going to continue. And quantitative easing is inflation. So if the Fed is doing quantitative easing, it is creating inflation. And therefore, it can't be fighting inflation because you can't fight inflation and create inflation at the same time, right? It's like you step on the gas and the brakes, the car doesn't go anywhere. Except the problem is the Fed is stepping on the inflation gas harder than the inflation brake with the rate hike that we just had. So, um, we're actually going to err on having more inflation. So even though we have our foot on the brake a little bit, we're still flooring the gas pedal now. And so inflation is going to accelerate despite this dichotomy of policies. As a public person, I am hyper aware of safety and security. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays offline. Delete Me is a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web, and in the process, helps prevent potential ID theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted, and their experts will take it from there. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports showing what information they found, where they found it, and what they removed. Delete Me isn't just a one-time service. Delete Me is always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information that you don't want on the internet. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. Now at a special discount for my listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com gold and use the promo code gold 
gold at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash gold and enter code gold at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash gold, code gold. All right, I'm talking about the Fed and the expansion of the balance sheet in the past week. So we are back uh, doing quantitative easing. And the reason I started talking about this was because the, the media is looking at what's going on and they're surprised by these events as if they just kind of happened out of left field and nobody could have predicted them. And remember, that's exactly what they were saying at the financial crisis in 2008 that nobody could have predicted it. It was a 100-year flood, a black swan, right? Like, it was like, you know, just happened. No, it didn't, because I was predicting it publicly for years. It was obvious to me what was going to happen as a result of these artificially low interest rates that inflated the housing bubble. I saw it. I knew people were taking on more debt than they can repay because rates were so low, and banks were extending credit uh, in that environment to people who were not going to be able to repay their mortgages. I even remember being critical of the fact that when people were taking out adjustable rate mortgages, you could get a Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac guaranteed mortgage just based on your ability to afford the teaser rate. So the U.S. government was guaranteeing that a mortgage would be repaid, but only looking at somebody's income relative to the initial teaser rate on their mortgage. So let's say somebody was earning $2,000 a month and they had a mortgage and the mortgage was, let's say, $1,000 a month, mortgage payment, and the government would guarantee it, say, okay, we're going to guarantee this mortgage, right? The guy's earning $2,000 a month and his mortgage is $1,000 a month, half his income, but we're going to guarantee it. Well, what they didn't look at was, well, what could possibly happen to those payments in the event that interest rates go up? Well, let's say the maximum payment on that mortgage could have gone up to $2,000 a month from $1,000 a month. Well, is the guy going to pay his mortgage if it consumes 100% of his income? Of course not, because he's got to eat. He's got other expenses. Yet the U.S. government was dumb enough to put taxpayer guarantees behind these mortgages. I mean, so everything uh, was obvious to me in the lead up to the 2008 financial crisis. And then as soon as the government announced their cure, I knew that the new disease would be even worse than the one they were trying to cure. Although it wasn't a new disease, it was just the same disease, right? We just, you know, made it worse. We just, you know, supercharged that disease so it would come back and do even more damage than the original disease. And that is what is going on. But these commentators are acting as if, like, you know, we couldn't have saw this coming. I mean, especially when they're talking about what's happening in Europe. I mean, Europe had negative interest rates. How dumb was that? And banks were buying bonds with negative interest rates. I was pointing out at the time the absurdity, how much money was going to be lost uh, by the bag holders, right? Yeah, those bonds were fine as long as you weren't caught holding it to maturity. But, you know, all these banks were dumb enough to put this paper on their books and then say we're holding it to maturity. It was like, you know, a hot potato. You could get the bond, but you had to quickly turn around and pass it 
to someone else. Maybe kind of like Ole Maid, right? You can, you can win the game of Ole Maid, you know, with having the Ole Maid in your hand. You just can't have it in your hand at the end of the game. Well, the problem is all these banks, they, they got the Ole Maid, right? The game ended, the Fed jacked up rates, and everybody loses. Every card in their hand is Ole Maid. Well, I don't know if you can play that game anymore. It might not be politically correct. So maybe some of you younger guys don't even know what I'm talking about. But the, the point is the music stopped playing and they don't have a chair. Maybe musical chairs, maybe you know that one. But this was obvious. In fact, I was so worried about this years ago, you know, when I, we were still running Euro Pacific Bank, you know, before it was, uh, you know, put into receivership. Uh, and it's almost now it's going to be uh, nine months since it was put into receivership. And again, I see on the Internet, you know, people, you know, want to blame me. Hey, Peter, why aren't your customers getting their money back? It's not my fault. The money's there. It's the governments that aren't letting the money be returned. That's 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 your government in action. Right. They bail out some banks that are insolvent and then they take a completely solvent bank, shut it down and they refuse to let the bank return the money uh, to the customers. But I think it will hopefully uh, happen soon. Uh, fingers crossed on that. But years ago, when deposit rates were negative on euros, right? And we had a bunch of euros and we were getting charged to keep the euros in it. And we had to pass that on to our customers. We started charging uh, the negative interest rates to our customers because we were paying uh, the bank where we kept the euros negative rate. Now, we could have moved our euros to Deutsche Bank. Deutsche Bank actually didn't have a negative rate. They were like the only bank that we could find that wasn't going to charge a negative rate. But we didn't want to put our euros at Eurobank, at Deutsche Bank. Why? Well, because we were worried about the solvency. Even back then, I was worried about Deutsche Bank. The reason that Deutsche Bank had to pay a higher interest rate than other banks was because it was riskier. So anybody who put their money with Deutsche Bank in order to get a higher return or to avoid a negative return, which is the same thing, they were taking additional risk. Now, I didn't want to do that, right? I, I wanted to keep the money safe. I wanted to put it in a bank that was more reliable, more trustworthy. Because remember, my bank didn't have any deposit insurance. So we had to be frugal. We had to actually look around and, and make sure that the banks that we were putting money with, and at one point we had a lot of accounts. We had accounts with like six or seven major banks around the world. Now, after the 60 Minutes uh, defamation came out, a lot of these banks that we were working with stopped working with us. So we, we had to move money around. You know, our choices became limited after that happened. And, you know, all these banks, it wasn't easy to get accounts with these banks. I mean, they did major compliance uh, on my bank because most banks, you know, they, they couldn't get these accounts. But we had, we had such good, you know, uh, uh, protocols for KYC and AML. I mean, they, they wanted to do business with us. We had a very good track record until it was destroyed uh, by the false allegations at 60 Minutes. But again, I don't want to get into that again. But the point I'm making is way back then, there was risk in Deutsche Bank. And it was apparent. So how are people now so surprised? Oh, they've got a problem in European banking? They've raised interest rates? They've barely started to raise rates. What is it? 3% in the Eurozone? It's 4% in the UK. They got 10% inflation. They're not even close to rates high enough to fight that inflation. Imagine what would be going on in Europe right now if they did raise rates high enough to fight inflation. I mean, could you imagine if everything is collapsing now and the rates are still this low? Because in historic terms, 
they're low. Where are they in the U.S.? You know, we got 5% Fed funds. That's not historically high. That's only high in recent history. And in fact, if you look at what's happening right now to interest rates in the U.S., they're actually plunging. Bond yields have been tumbling. I got the, the whole uh, list up here. So the yield now on a 12-month, and this was like at 5%, I think, like a couple of weeks ago. It's down to 421. A two-year is down to 377. It was like 5%. Yields have plunged. The 10-year U.S. Treasury is down at 3 spot 37. You got 5% Fed funds. Look at that negative slope in that yield curve. And the year-over-year inflation in the U.S. is 6%. So, I mean, for some of those 10 years, you're going to be stuck with higher inflation. So the market is still assuming that inflation is going to fall sharply so that you can still get a positive return on a 10-year Treasury that's yielding just 3.37%. Now, the markets are completely wrong. Anybody who is buying these bonds is going to lose if they don't quickly sell them to somebody else who is going to lose if they end up as the bag holder who gets caught with that hot potato of a negative yielding U.S. Treasury. But why are yields dropping? Because most investors still don't get it. So number one, they're confused. They don't understand why this is happening. They don't understand you know, why the banks are in trouble. They don't get that this was going to happen for sure, that there was no avoiding this. This is one of the reasons that the Fed waited so long. This is why they dragged their feet. This is why rates stayed so low for so long, because they knew that the minute they, they raised them, the devil was coming back to collect. So they wanted to postpone that. You know, there are people who are saying, well, you know, the, the mistake the Fed made, if they made a mistake, was they tightened too much, right? I hear that. You know, they, 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 they shouldn't have raised rates as much as they did. That wasn't the mistake. Had the Fed stopped raising rates a few months ago, let's say they stopped at 4% and they said that we're done, the dollar would have tanked. Inflation would have soared because people would have seen that the Fed is not really willing to fight inflation. And they, they would have had to reprice all these assets. The gold price would be $1,000 an ounce higher at a minimum had the Fed stopped um, sooner and not continued with the pretense of you know, fighting inflation to the bitter end and, and making sure it goes down to 2%. Because had they stopped hiking, they couldn't say that. And, and so in order to avoid that catastrophe, they had to keep raising rates. And so now we're going to have this catastrophe instead. But every choice that they were going to make was going to have a bad outcome. That is the box that the Fed put itself in. It was going to be damned if it did and damned if it didn't, right? So it did, but it, it was still damned. Now, even now, now that everything started to collapse, because at least the last couple of rate hikes, you know, they, they looked around, they hiked rates, and, and, and there wasn't a complete implosion, right? Again, it's like you put a straw on a camel's back and you look around at the camel, he looks okay. And so you put another straw up there and, you know, all right, still, still standing. But then you finally put one and it's just one too many. And then he starts to buckle, right? So now, okay, we can't put any more straws on, right? This, the, the knees are buckling. That's kind of where we are. Although they maybe regret that last quarter point that, that, that might've been it, right? I don't know if they're about to reverse that. We'll see. Uh, but that, added a lot of weight to that crippled camel. Um, but 
how would they not know that this was going to happen? But because they don't get it, right, that the government caused this and that it was inevitable, they still think the government can solve the problem, right? They're looking for more government solutions. They don't get that the government solutions caused the problem. But also, they expect what happened in 2009, 2010 to happen again. The reason these bond yields are falling is because everybody assumes recession. Now, a recession is inevitable. Forget about this soft landing. That's now impossible because we now have this financial crisis or banking crisis, and that means the soft landing is impossible. Now, of course, it was always impossible because this banking crisis was always inevitable. It's just that the people who are predicting a soft landing, see, they didn't get that. They had no idea what they were talking about. Uh, and that's why they think that, well, this is just some coincidence. It just happened to happen, like, you know, and interfere with this rate normalization. Oh, my God, you know, it rained on the Fed's parade just out of nowhere, right? And, and so they assume that we're going to get this recession. And they assume that the recession is going to allow rates to fall, in particular because they assume that the recession is going to solve the inflation problem, that the Fed's rate hikes aren't going to solve the inflation problem, but it's the weak economy that's going to solve it. Because part of the reason we had inflation, people think, is the strong economy, the strong labor market. Well, if we have a recession, we get some unemployment, we don't have this hot labor market, people think prices are going to go down. That is where they're wrong. Because as I've been saying, again, since the beginning, since 2009, when the Fed does this, it's going to accelerate the inflation problem that they had to ignore in order to turn their attention to the financial crisis and the economy. And again, they're not just bailing out the banks. They're going to be bailing out corporate America. They're going to be bailing out the U.S. government because everybody borrowed too much money during the time period where rates were artificially low. Uh, governments, individuals, corporations reacted to the incentives that the Federal Reserve was creating. And those who didn't, uh, you know, suffered. Again, that was part of the moral hazard. If you were taking a lot of risk, then you made money. And your competitors who didn't want to take the risk didn't make money. Uh, because they were worried, and so they, out, they lost out on customers, they lost out on business. I mean, the government rewarded aggressive risk-taking, and now they rewarded again by bailing out the people who took all those risks. So the market, the bond market, is pricing for a recession in which inflation comes down. But the recession they're going to get is going to be stagflation. It's going to be with inflation uh, surging, to new highs. And then I think when this finally happens, even the village idiot is going to get it, right? When all of a sudden the Fed's balance sheet is 11 trillion, 12 trillion, uh, when we're in recession, but inflation now is double digit, nobody is going to believe that the Fed's got this under control, that the Fed's got any tools in that chest to return inflation to 2% unless it's willing to completely crash the economy and bankrupt the U.S. government, which we know it's not willing to do. Uh, and ultimately, the Fed and everybody's going to have to say, well, you know, 
we're going to have to have inflation and they'll probably blame it on capitalism. They'll blame it on the speculators. They'll blame it on everybody except themselves. They'll never accept responsibility. A politician is never going to do that on either side of the Atlantic. But investors had better be prepared because that is the outcome. And we're going to have not just a uh, financial crisis. This is going to be a currency crisis and then a sovereign debt crisis. And that's what I've been saying since the beginning, the only thing that surprises me is how long it took. Nothing that's happening is a surprise to me. Everyone in the financial media, all these economists, everyone at the Fed, they're like totally in shock, at least publicly, by what's happening. No, I've been waiting for this. It's all long overdue. It was going to happen. There was no way around it, as are the consequences that still await us. The fact that when the Fed decides, and when the government, that they're going to bail people out, they're going to bail banks out, inflation is going through the roof. That is the choice. The, the, the reason that we able, were able to get away with it last time don't exist anymore. We're not going to have another 10 years of can kicking. That's done, right? We're out of road. And so we're going to pay the immediate price for this action. Now, whether a lot of people connect the dots because they might say, well, you know, we didn't have inflation last time, so why are we having it this time? The inflation we're having this time is still a result of what we did last time. It just finally caught up to us. Also, I want to go over some of the economic news that came out just in the last couple of days since I did the podcast on, um, on Wednesday. And by the way, in case you're not sure, I had a birthday between that podcast and this podcast. So this is the first podcast I've done in my 60s. And um, some of you have wished me a happy birthday. I see some of that. So thank you very much for that. And um, But I'm doing everything I can to stay young. I spent almost two hours this morning in a hyperbaric chamber. I do my work in there, so at least it's not two hours of dead time, but you know, I get to breathe uh, 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 pure oxygen under a couple atmospheres of pressure. And uh, I just started this. You know, I'm doing this now, and I'm doing a lot of stuff. Uh, I'm waiting for my, uh, my cryo chamber, and I've got this red light bed. I'm, you know, hasn't ha that hasn't hooked up yet, but I'm doing all this stuff, sauna, fasting, working out. So I'm trying to stay young, right, so I can continue to, um, to uh, you know, do these podcasts and uh, you know, enjoy my life. In, in my 60s, uh, but I'm not going to do the uh, Q&A today following this podcast because I do have to get ready. We got this pretty big party going on at my house, but I may do a Locals Shift Premium live special on Sunday night again because maybe there'll be some announcement over the weekend coming out of this plunge protection team We'll see how the markets react. So if there's something big going on, you won't have to wait until the Monday podcast. I might go live on Sunday and start talking about it. So if you want to make sure you don't miss that, then go to shiftradio.com premium and sign up, become a member, and then you'll be ready. And if I do something, well, you'll get notified and you'll be able to participate and you'll be able to ask questions and have your question answered. But anyway, getting back to this economic data that came out again, that validates, uh, you know, my stagflation uh, forecast. We got the Chicago Fed National Activity Index for February. Now, the January index was at 
the expectation was for a decline to 0.18 in February. Instead, we dropped all the way down to minus 0.19, so the opposite side of zero. So weak economy, the three-month moving average, though, I guess, moved up a bit from minus 0.26 to minus 0.13, but the data was still worse than expected, and it does show a contracting economy. And that was before this financial crisis started, right? This is all rearview mirror stuff. This financial crisis didn't kick off until March. So none of this is in the February data, which was already bad. Same thing with new home sales. Uh, new home sales were at re originally reported for January at 670,000. These are annualized numbers. That got revised all the way down to 633,000. That's a big downward revision. And then even after that downward revision, the February number was still weaker than expected, although not by much. They were looking for 645,000 and we got 640,000. But I would expect that even though mortgage rates may have come down a bit in this crisis, uh, I think that uh, this is going to send an even deeper chill throughout the housing market. Because a lot of these community banks now are having a lot of problems. And a lot of these banks are the ones that are writing a lot of these mortgages. So uh, there's going to be a problem here for uh, the housing industry. Kansas City Fed Manufacturing Index for March. I'm not really sure here. It came out at a zero. It was the last month was zero. I'm not sure if this number is correct. It looks like a weak number, but I don't really have much data on it. Uh, but I, I pulled it up. Already went over the balance sheet. Durable goods came out today. And another weak number. So the January number for durable goods was initially reported at minus 4.5. Came out at minus 5. So that number is now worse than they originally told us. They had expected an improvement in February. It was supposed to be positive 1.5. Well, they were right. It was an improvement, but it wasn't into positive territory. We got minus 1% for durable goods in February. So back-to-back -back negative numbers. If you take out transportation, they were looking for a gain of 0.3. Instead, we got zero. And core capital goods, which was supposed to come out, well, actually, I don't know what it was supposed to come out. It came out at 0.2. But we did downwardly revise the prior month, which was originally reported as 0.8. And it ended up being revised to 0.3. The one number that had some strength in it was the PMI that we got today for March. And so this has some part of March in it. And it came out at 53.3. I don't know what they were expecting, but I know that the manufacturing part beat expectations. It was supposed to be 47.2, and it came out at 49.3. Now, it's still sub-50, which still indicates contraction, but not as big a contraction. And the service number was much stronger. They were looking for 50.3, and we got 53.8, which was a much stronger number than forecast. And I think the main reason for that is prices. I think in the service sector, we're really starting to see momentum building in price increases. And I think that's really what's going on with that stronger number. I think it's just higher prices that are responsible for the increase. Now, you know, there was a temporary uh, decline in the goods prices because we had a decline in energy and other commodity prices as the Fed had tightened 
and that was taking its initial effect. But now that the Fed has eased, right, now that there are no more rate hikes, yes, Powell raised rates by 25 basis points because I guess he said he was going to raise and he didn't want to not raise. But now that he's told everybody that he's not sure what he's going to do now, right, it's like we don't really know what's going on in the future. There's a lot of uncertainty. So as I said in my last podcast, he's opened the door to not hiking rates, which means he's not going to hike rates because the market is going to make sure that they push the Fed through that door and there are no rate hikes. So the rate hikes are over. The only question is, when is the next rate cut and how low will the Fed be able to take rates? I don't think they're going to get all the way down to zero again. I don't even think they'll get down to 1%. They will cut rates. They're just not going to be able to cut them that much because inflation is going to explode. And so that will you know, uh, shorten uh, the, the, the uh, easing cycle. But of course, as inflation gets worse, that accelerates the amount of ease because not only are you lowering rates, but real rates are, are dropping even faster because as you're cutting rates, inflation is going up. And so the gap between yield and inflation just widens. But we're going to cut rates. Haven't done that yet. But just telegraphing to the market that you're done, that, that counts as a pivot as far as I'm concerned. I mean, is it a soft pivot because they haven't actually cut rates? Maybe. I don't know. I, I just think it's about as clear a sign as you're going to get. So anybody who's still looking for a pivot, you know, you're, you're mistaken. You got your pivot. It's here. Right? And, and so you're, you're, you're just risking losing a lot by waiting for some official pivot before you change your investment uh, strategy, you know, to a defensive one against inflation because you're waiting for the Fed to really start cutting rates or cranking up the presses. They've already done that, right? But when it comes to quantitative tightening, that's gone. And not only did they stop quantitative tightening, they started quantitative easing. So what more evidence of a pivot do you need than that when it comes to uh, what they're doing with money? Now, the Fed is denying, as I said on my last podcast, they're denying that this is QE because they're saying the intentions are different. So that's what makes QE QE, what your intention is. So QE is when you print money and and buy government bonds and mortgages, if your intent is to lower interest rates. But if you do the exact same thing, but you have a different intent, well, then it's not QE. Well, that, 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 that makes no sense whatsoever, right? So it is QE, I don't care what these guys want to call it. And the only reason they call it QE is because they don't want to call it what it actually is, and that is inflation. And that's what they've been creating, and that's why we have this inflation problem, and that's why this problem is about to get a lot worse, because the Fed has no choice. And in fact, Powell admitted that in the Q&A in a way when he refused to give any uh, economic advice to Congress He refused to criticize any of their policies. He just said, we take whatever fiscal policy we get and we just build it into our model and we just do our best. Well, that means inflation. If they've just got to take any deficits that Congress wants to hand them and they got to figure out, you know, how to deal with it, well, they're going to print money. I don't care what they call it, QE, it's inflation, even if it's not QE, it's still inflation. It's about to accelerate. And so everybody needs to do something now. Don't wait. Do it now. Yes, the price of gold is still below 2000 It got above 2000 a little bit intraday today. Uh, but it did sell off. Let me see uh, where it ended up 
closing, it couldn't hold 2,000. Gold sold off close to 20 bucks. So it closed at 1972. Still a pretty strong close. Gold stocks shrugged off the drop in gold for a change and actually were positive on the day. Uh, so, you know, investors are now starting to buy some gold stocks, realizing that they're still super cheap given where gold already is. But most of these gold stock investors still expect the price of gold to go down as soon as this crisis is over. And again, they think that inflation is going to come down. It's not. Inflation is going to run out of control. But gold is strong. Yes, it hasn't closed above 2000 yet. It will. I don't think there's much downside left. I don't think we're going to see 1800 again. I think that ship has sailed. So I think if you got your eyes on prices that low, you're not going to be a buyer. You got to be willing to buy stock, you know, gold here in the 1900s. I think buying below 2000 is going to be a good price. You're going to look back at this a year or two from now and think of how cheap gold was when it was still below $2,000 an ounce. So you want to buy some physical gold. I know the guys at Shift Gold are still working overtime. They're working weekends. They're taking your orders at shiftgold.com. And, you know, talk to the representatives at Europe Pacific Asset Management about getting your portfolios in order, transferring your accounts over. I don't know how much time we have left. I mean, I really think we're rapidly approaching the end of this, where the window is going to shut, right? And you have to have your financial house in order. You have to have all of your inflation hedges in place uh, because I think when it finally moves, it's going to be fast. And a lot of people are going to get completely blindsided by these events as they have in the past. But my listeners, my audience, my clients will be prepared. Nothing is going to surprise the people who listen to my podcast or my customers because I have been warning about this for years, and now those warnings are coming to pass. And I know sometimes people criticize me because I warned warned too early. Well, you know what? A warning that's too late doesn't do you any good. The only warnings that matter are the ones that are too early. That's it for now. Take care.